Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, current, and cult films. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and we're on the Lock 22 Network. Here it's always Saturday night, and I'm pleased to welcome our guest, author James Chapman, a professor of film studies at the University of Leicester and editor of the Historical Journal of Film, Radio, and Television. His books include License to Thrill, A Cultural History of the James Bond Films, Hitchcock and the Spy Film, and the, Bun and the Money Behind the Screen, A History of British Film Finance, 1945 to 1985. His latest book is Dr. No, the first James Bond film, a book I highly recommend for its forensic look at a very underrated 007 adventure. Hi, James. Hi, Steve. Thanks for inviting me on the show. Oh, I'm happy to have you here. Before we get into your, you and Dr. No, I have to ask you because um, there's been a bit of a firestorm around the latest James Bond adventure, No Time to Die here in the States. And I was curious, uh, since you probably are more apt to be able to take the temperature than I am over here, what has been the reaction to No Time to Die in England? Um, I, I think it's divided uh, Bond fans. I mean, it, it was a popular film. It did well at the box office, um, COVID notwithstanding. So, um, you, you know, the public seemed to have uh, responded well to it. But it, it did divide the fans. I think there's one group who, who think it's one of the best Bond movies ever. Um, and it's wrapping up the Daniel Craig era in, in fine style. And there's another group um, who felt that it was maybe a bit self-indulgent, that it was certainly too long, um, uh, and, and that it was maybe a film too far for Craig. I mean, I mean Spectre in certain ways you know, could have been the, um, the end movie for that uh, era of the franchise. So, yeah, it's, it's divided opinion, I think. But it has, you know, therefore kept Bond topical and, and people talking about it. Very much so. And um, I agree it was too long. Uh, it seems that length has become an issue in movies in general these days. I think that uh, the idea of doing almost three hour movies, action movies, seems a bit ridiculous. But uh, I think uh, on the one hand, I see that there are fewer movies being made for the big screen. So they, perhaps they want to add more bang for the buck. But um, it's uh, a little frustrating for the for people with uh, active bladders. <laughs> and that's the line that um, Alvin Hitchcock used once, wasn't it? Is that really he did? Uh, yeah, it was something like the, um, the 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 length of a movie has a direct relationship to the endurance of the human bladder. <laughs> well, I got to spend uh, an hour with him once. Uh, I got the most interesting phone call from a friend of mine. We were both writing for Cinefantastique back in the 70s. And uh, my friend Kyle Counts uh, said, you know, who was working on a retrospective of the birds, called me up one morning and said, I can't make it down. Can you interview Hitchcock? And it was the greatest no brainer question in the history of my life. Of course, I would interview Hitchcock. And I got a chance to sit, sit with him. I can't remember. I don't think I asked him about the James Bond films because we were obviously focused on the birds. But I remember later on kicking myself, asking him if he had ever been asked to direct a Bond. What, what, do you know anything about whether he was ever asked to direct a Bond? 
yeah, that must be a great experience to meet uh, to meet Hitchcock. Um, I, I envy you there. Um, well, it, it's it, it's anecdotal the, what evidence we have, but um, whether he was, I don't think he was ever formally um, approached. But when Ian Fleming and Kevin McClory were working on their ultimately unmade film, uh, James Bond of the Secret Service uh, was, was the original title in the late 1950s. Um, there's some suggestion that they might have made soundings towards um, Hitchcock or, or Hitchcock's office. Um, Fleming, I think, knew Hitchcock slightly. Um, it, it's not clear when they when they might have met. Um, I do know from, from research I uh, found when I was researching Hitchcock's films that in, um, in, in, in Foreign Correspondent, which was Hitchcock's second Hollywood movie, um, the character in the film played by George Sanders, who uh, is called Scott Folius. Uh, he, he's an English uh, journalist. But in the uh, in the original treatment, he was called Ian Fleming. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so let's talk about your youth. Uh, were you, did you grow up a, a, an ardent film fan from the beginning? Were you in a film going family? Um, yeah, I, I was I was a film fanatic. Um, I think I inherited it from my uh, father. He was a film buff, and was of the generation where you know they went to the movies, uh, local movie theater, three times a week. This would be back in the nineteen thirties, nineteen forties. So I think I inherited that interest from uh, from him. And I was yeah, I was watching movies for you know since when I can remember on um, on TV. And we started getting the Bond movies. In the UK, from around about it's 1975 when Doctor No is 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 first seen. I I don't think I saw Doctor No the first time it was on TV, but I did see um, For Much With Love, Goldfinger, Thunderball, um, and they came around quite frequently um, in 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 that period in the late uh, in the late 70s. Um, and then it was in 1977 we were on holiday and uh, uh, Dad took me to see uh, Spy Love Me. Uh, in the cinema, and that was my first big screen experience. It wasn't just the first Bond movie I'd seen on the big screen, but the first film um, of, of any sort. And um, he'd uh, he'd sat me down beforehand and and said, "Look, it, it's not the same James Bond that you've seen on on the other films and uh, on t the on TV." And I thought, "Oh, yeah, it's going to be no good then, is it? You know, because I'd, I'd like you know, golfing. I had a particularly vivid memory of." And, um, oh, yeah, but I'll, okay, I'll go and see it. And, uh, of course, well, you know, I'm five minutes into The Spy Who Loved Me and uh, um, you get that ski chase and, and, and that great parachute. Set. And, and, and who, who, who was Sean Connery after that? So Roger Moore <laughs> became my Bond. Was, yeah, but I kind of, so I kind of grew up with, with two Bonds. I was watching the Roger Moore films as they came out in the cinema and then the Connery films as they came on TV. Well, you're, you are... Um justification for my theory, which I think is pretty well accepted, that Roger just brought a whole new generation of Bond fans to the, um, you know, to the party. I mean, by, by the mid-70s, or at least the early 70s, my theory was that the darkness of Bond was, was I think that it kind of run its course. They wanted to get into more popular entertainment. And with an actor like Roger Moore, who had a great reputation from television as a light comedic uh, hero, uh, was perfect for those times. And I think that uh, uh, 
the, I, I've, although the, the Bond films have always been big international hits, I think Roger catapulted them to the next level in the 70s. I think certainly Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker were, were, were big, big hits. Um, you know, just sort of one tier below, you know, Jaws, Star Wars, the, 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 the early Lucas Spielberg films. But that was a great era for um, big budget, big spectacle, widescreen movies. You, you had Superman, you had the first of the Star Trek uh, films, uh, that kind of post-Star Wars science fiction boom, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind and so on. Um, and 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 the, the revived Bond films, um, you know, going back into widescreen and going back to the scale of the massive production values and the big Ken Adams sets, which um, had, 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 you know sort of not been not really been there in, in Roger's first couple of films. Um, uh, yeah, I think really put them back at the forefront of popular culture. And there's also that period, there's that shift from um, we'd seen coming out of Hollywood, the um, the, the, the the kind of auteur cinema. In the early seventies, the uh, you know when Coppola, Scorsese, Bob Raffleson, uh, those sorts of directors are, are making their critical breakthrough, um, and and something like The Godfather was obviously a big commercial success as well. But um, um, you know, serious, very very serious films, and you you sort of see a, a sort of reemergence, I think, with the with the Lucas Spielberg films, with The Spy Who Loved Me, and with Superman of the of the old fashioned epic storytelling uh, tradition that, that, that had been perhaps in abeyance for a while. Well, that summer you saw The Spy I Love Me was a big summer for me. That was my uh, research trip for my first James Bond book uh, to London. And I got to Pinewood just as they had wrapped, so nothing was there. I, I walked onto the, uh, the 007 stage and there was just a water tank, an empty water tank and a lot of uh, space. But uh, I had the uh, thrill of, well, certainly I, I, the, the, they opened the filing cabinets to me, which back in 77 was a big boon. And Michael Wilson and Ked Adam uh, drove me out to Pinewood to see what the first cut, the finished cut of the movie. Uh, this was in, uh, I think it was in uh, May or June. And um, it was, actually it probably wasn't the first cut. It was probably the final cut because the movie came out just a couple months later. Um, but it was thrilling and uh, big screen entertainment. And I think that's always been a hallmark of the series that you, you don't see a Bond movie on your telly first. You see it in the theaters with, a, with an audience. Um, let's, well, let's, let's get into Dr. No. I mean, uh, by the way, I, as I mentioned, I, I just loved your book. Uh, I had done a lot of forensic research into films for years and Whenever I see someone tackle it from this level, I'm very impressed. Um, wh uh, when did you decide to write about Dr. No? Well, thanks, uh, thanks, Steve, for what you say about the book. Um, um, I, I, I worked, I've been working on Bond for, you know, maybe 25 years uh, on and off. And um, I'd been in License to Thrill in the late 90s, um, which was a history of the, 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 the Bond series as a whole. And... Um, with research, it, it, it doesn't stand still. Um, knowledge changes, new sources comes to light, and, and that can prompt you to rethink. You find out more about things. And, and that was the case with, with Dr. No. Um, I, I had access to different archives uh, that I had when I was first working on it. So um, 
Richard Maybaum's papers, uh, the, the script writer, or the, the, the main script writer for Dr. No, um, his papers um, at the University of Iowa have become available. Um, there's material uh, from the United Artists Collection um, at the University of uh, Wisconsin-Madison. Um, and in London, the archive of a company called Film Finances, which was the completion guarantor uh, for Dr. No. Uh, they, they were involved just in the very first Bond picture. And, and, and that yielded a wealth of information. And it, it, it told me new things that I, that I didn't know about the film. It challenged some of the assumptions I'd made in the past. Um, it provided uh, more hard evidence of the production process, of the budget, the costs, and, and so on. So I had this, this, this wealth of, of material that was, um, you, you know, was waiting to, a, story, a good story waiting to be told. Um, I saw Dr. No again on the big screen um, at a, a film festival in, in Bologna, Italy. Uh, I think this was 2019, and they had a strand of Technicolor archive uh, prints. So this is a, a, a fresh print from the uh, Technicolor labs from 1963. Uh, and it looks great. I mean, I mean, it, it looks really fresh and uh, stands up incredibly well uh, when you see it in a cinema with an, with an audience. Um, and I remember the introduction to the film by um, uh, a so-called expert, I, I won't go into too much detail, um, who, who more or less didn't have anything to say about Dr. No. All, all he said was this film was released in 1962 and it was in Technicolor and that was the year that Lawrence of Arabia came out and David Lean was a great director and he spoke about Lawrence of Arabia for 10 minutes whilst introduced and had nothing to say about Dr. No. And, and that just brought home to me the sense that we're in a certain kind of, um, uh, a certain kind of intellectual film culture, perhaps. The, uh, you know, the Bond films still aren't really taken all that seriously. They're not deemed as being um, historically important. And you know, this, is the, this is the longest running continuous film series in motion picture history. The, 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 this year is the 60th anniversary of Dr. No. Um, that's pretty much half the entire history of motion pictures. And for the same series to be around for that long, um, regardless of what we think of the films. I mean, it, it, it's an astonishing production achievement. So I thought it was time to go back and, and look at Dr. No. And what I tried to do um, was try to you know, it's never possible to, to, to entirely detach yourself from, from your own perspective looking back. But, but, but I tried to think about Dr. No without thinking about all the Bond films that came later. Um, yes, it was the first James Bond movie, um, but I didn't want to read it retrospectively through that kind of lens. So I wanted to look at the, the, the original production context, uh, a detailed account of the, uh, of the making of the film, and to um, you, you get a sense of what, what the producers, what, what, what the director Terence Young felt they were doing with the film and how people responded at the time. Because now when we go to see a Bond movie, you know, we were talking about No Time to Die, we've been talking about The Spy Love Me. We go to see a Bond movie now with a whole set of expectations about what we want from a Bond movie and so on. But in 1962, um, when, when Dr. No came out in, in, um, in the UK, uh, nobody had the, those expectations. It was something really fresh, new and original. I wanted to try to get back to that uh, um, historical moment, I guess you'd call it. Well, the, um, the, the movie's interesting in, in, from my perspective because I did not see the movie in the theaters. 
I did not also did not see From Russia with Love in the theaters. I didn't see them together until they came out, I believe, in 1964 or 65 in a double feature on U.S. screens, which, I, as you pointed out in the book, did very well. In fact, I probably would say that it was probably the most successful double feature released in the States ever after their main runs. Now, you say in your book that um, there was method behind all the madness, that UA knew what they had. They knew they had a successful project uh, to get out there. I, I asked the question because the movie, now granted I was 11, so I wasn't aware of movie marketing by any means, but this did, and when it got to Los Angeles, I don't remember there being a lot of fanfare as also from Russia with Love. Both films were given good releases, but there wasn't fanfare. Is it, is it accurate to say that aside from the premiere in London of Dr. No, that there were no premieres or any special attention given the Dr. No release in the U.S. that you know of? Um, it, it's partially correct. I think even in London, um, it, it didn't have a, a, a premiere in the way that we understand that now. You know, it wasn't a, a, a super special event. It was just the first screening at the London Pavilion on the um, on, on, on the 5th of October. Um, so so the, the later Bond films did have um, sort of set piece, red carpet premieres, special guests and, and all those sort of things. But I don't think that happened with um, with Dr. No. Um, it certainly got plenty of publicity and it's, it's, it's all over the, um, the trade papers. It's all over the popular press with the, with the ads and so on. And it gets pretty wide, uh, pretty wide review coverage um, in, in the United States where it comes out in May 1963. Uh, so it's you know over, over half a year um, after after it's been out in the UK. Um, the, the UA had a very canny uh, strategy. Um, they they opened it as what they called a premier showcase event, which meant that they would take cities like 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 New York, like Chicago, um, and 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 show it at a select number of cinemas. Um, but sort of relatively prestigious um, uh, cinemas. And um, it, it, it made quite an impact there um, before it goes on to a wider uh, release um, on, 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 and he's rolled out on a, on a nationwide basis. Of course, you know, it, it, it's, I was finding when I'm, when I'm teaching this to students that it's, it's difficult to explain that the release patterns in those days were so different to what we used to now. Today, it's a blanket release. A, a new movie comes out it's everywhere in the opening weekend and that idea of you know, the opening weekend box office is, 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 is such a big deal this wasn't the case in 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 the 1960s it gets um you know it, it's in theaters for a long time compared to movies today and it opens on, on a relatively smaller number of uh, number of screens also we're so used to television advertising these days that uh, when movies open they're all over the tv in 1962, the concept of advertising on television was, if not unknown, fairly infrequent. It, it was developing, but it was it wasn't such a big thing. So, but by the time of by the time of Goldfinger, Thunderball, um, the, the the publicity behind those um, you know, those films were, were the height of Bond mania, really, both 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 in the U.S. in the U.K. and in all of the rest of the world. And um, the, the 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 they've really ramped up. The campaign uh, behind them at the time, and Goldfinger 
um, gets um, by by the standards of the 1960s a very wide release. It's it's not the thousands and thousands of, of prints that you have a, a, a blockbuster today, but it was um, I think it was about a thousand prints worldwide. Um, and, um, and and opens at some fairly prestigious uh, locations. I, I think it opened in the U.S. at, um, at the Gorman's Chinese, uh, where the, where the, I in, saw it in Los Angeles. I, yeah. So, yeah. Um, and then and and the, you know there's there's a real effort behind that. Um, but they're riding a bandwagon by that time. They know it's uh, they know it's going to be successful. And um, it, well, one of the interesting things I found out about um, about Doctor No was that. Um, the distributor didn't exactly give it away, um, but I think they only took a thirty percent rental on the first um, the first stateside release of Doctor No. Um, so exhibitors got to keep more of the um, more of the box office. But when it comes to the reissues, um, because the film is a proven commodity by that stage, and that that reissue with uh, from Russia with Love. Uh, the distributor is able to take a bigger a bigger share, and that that's unusual. It's usually the other way around with a, a re-release. Sure, sure, no, absolutely. Well, I as I said in my opening, I consider the movie underrated in many ways. Uh, Doctor No, as you saw in Bologna, I mean, still plays like gangbusters on the big screen or whatever wherever you see it. It's still a a very entertaining film. Um, let's talk a little bit about the creative. You've got a director named Terence Young, who was, um, you know, kind of a, I, I kind of want to call him a little bit more of a journeyman director. He doesn't have a, a, a particular style or he's not considered one of the auteurs of the period. But if you look at his three films, starting with Dr. No, and then of course from Rush to Love and Thunderball, he seems to have found his perfect way of expressing his director skills. What can you tell us about Terence? Yeah, well, I, I think um, your, your term, Steve, journeyman, is 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 the ideal term. It perfectly sums up uh, your know, directors like Terence Young. In fact, you know, also like a lot of the uh, uh, later Bond uh, directors doing doing the um, doing the, the the classic period of the movies. Um, um, Young um, had. Um, had been around in the British film industry for, for quite a while. Um, started out, I think, as an editor, uh, moved into directing, uh, doing the war, he did war service, um, moved into feature films uh, after the war. Um, and it made a number of, um, of British films, war films, as there were a lot of those around in, uh, in Britain in the 1950s. Um, and his big break came in 1952, when uh, Kirby Broccoli and uh, Irving Allen had formed Warwick Pictures, uh, which was one of these companies that was, uh, it was an American company, or rather the British subsidiary of an American company, uh, that would produce uh, pictures in Britain to take advantage of the Edi Levy, which was a subsidy for uh, production, provided the films had a, a, a largely British crew and were the studio scenes were shot in Britain. And uh, uh, Broccoli and Irving Allen made a film called The Red Beret. They were originally going to make it for RKO. Um, Howard Hughes got, got funny over it. They took it to uh, Columbia and, and came and shot it in Britain with Alan Ladd as the star. And, and, and Young was the director for that. So um, he, he gets involved in making, he makes a number of films for Warwick. He makes um, uh, Safari, um, uh, Tank Force, uh, which is... Uh, 
known also. I think there's, there's no time to die um, as his alternative title. Um, and so he's, he's, he's had experience of working, particularly with, with, with Kirby Bockley. I think that's why he was in the frame uh, when, when, when Dr. No came around. He might not have been the first choice. Anecdotally, it suggested that Guy Hamilton might have been asked first, that Guy Green might have been um, asked and for whatever reasons didn't want to uh, didn't want to take it. Um, when when the, uh, the, the the completion guarantor saw the uh, script and paperwork for Doctor No, they they the, the, the guarantor's role is to um, uh, provide a guarantee to the banks that are lending the money for the film uh, that if the film goes over budget, uh, the banks won't be asked to to, to lend more. Uh, the guarantor is comes to, to 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 step in at that point and, and so they paid very close scrutiny to the um both to the, uh, the the budget the schedule the script but also to the past record of the people involved and when they saw um uh dr no they said oh dear it's terence young uh young did have a reputation for going over budgets um he'd gone over budget on the red beret he'd gone over budget on safari um, he'd got over budget on um, Action of the Tiger, uh, which is um, a, a, an MGM action movie, not, not a particularly good one. It does have Sean Connery in a very small uh, role. Um, but, but he had a reputation of being something of a spendthrift. Um, to be fair to Young, a lot of these pictures were location pictures, and it, 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 it's always more likely that location pictures are going to experience you know, delays, weather delays, currency fluctuations, and so on. Uh, so I don't think it's necessarily Terence Young's fault uh, that that had happened. But um, yeah, there's a little bit of concern. And also, neither neither Kirby Broccoli nor Harry Saltzman had much of a reputation of bringing pictures in on budget um, at the time either. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. I, I think Young really finds his style with um, with Doctor No. Um, he, I think he. he talks a lot of interviews that you, you think he'd invented it all. I, I don't think that's the case. I, I think, you know, Peter Hunt's editing was important. I think Ted Moore's cinematography was was, was important too. Um, but I think Young recognised that, that what you need to do with a Bond movie was was give it a sense of humour, but not to make it into a spoof. That, you know, you would, you would take it seriously, um, but... We would tongue a little bit in cheek, but not not sending up the material. So the material is, is, is treated in deadly earnest, and that gives it this sense of um, sort of heightened melodrama um, that, that I think you know did did set the style, and and, and we see it there in 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 in, in the early Bond movies. Um, uh, Russia with Love, um, I think, is a very very uh, well directed film. I think it's a much more sophisticated film visually. Uh, than um, than Doctor No. Then Guy Hamilton takes over the Goldfinger, and that that's a, um, a you know a lush kind of uh, uh, modernist looking film. Terence comes back for uh, Thunderball, um, and and that's the you know the real epic. He is the first Bond widescreen, um, the, you know the big underwater battle at the end, and so on. I mean, he, he's nailed it by by, by that time. Mm. Yeah. He has a rep. He had a reputation for uh, certainly a lot of self-promotion. Uh, he um, a couple of things come to mind. First of all, he told me a little bit about being a, a tank commander in the war. I guess he was a rather dashing figure in the in. Uh, I'm not sure if it was Brian Horrocks's command because I know they there was a a, ma a major tank unit at, uh, that was involved. I think they were part of the. Uh, the ground attack in a bridge too far, where at the paratroopers were at one end 
and they had to, to try to rescue them uh, another. Also, uh, he did tell me, he said he was very proud of the fact that he directed the first Bond movie. Uh, what he considered to be the best Bond movie was From Russia With Love and the the biggest successful Bond movie, which was Thunderball, which of course in 1965 dollars was pretty pretty impressive. Um, let's talk about, about Maybaum. Now Maybaum is a playwright uh, primarily, but uh, had come to cinema, probably got his, his uh, uh, sea legs again working for Warwick uh, and some of their early films. What do you think Richard Maybaum brought to Dr. No? Um, I, I, I think Maybaum is, 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 is a very important figure. Um, yeah, he'd been a, a playwright. He was sort of one of that group of, um, you know, sort of, sort of progressive playwrights in the, uh, in, in, in the 1930s. Um, he'd, he, actually, he actually very briefly worked with Hitchcock. He was, I think he said himself, he was that writer number 67 on, on Foreign Correspondent and, and wrote just, 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 just one scene in a, in a Finnish movie. Um, but he, and he did work for TV as well. But yeah, um, he, he did have a, 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 a good working relationship with um, with Cubby Broccoli, especially on account of um, on account of white films. He, he scripted oh about half a dozen of those movies. And um, according to Maybaum's account, I mean, Maybaum, like like Terence Young, was in retrospect good at telling telling the story. Um, but in his account, he, he, he uh, you know, spoke to Cubby Broccoli in kind of about 1956, 57. And um, Broccoli said, have a look at these these Ian Fleming books. What do you think of those? And, you know, they, they both thought they would be good film material. I think Maybaum felt that at the time in the late 50s, they they couldn't quite have gone as far with the films as they could a few years later in terms of the um, the, the, the sex snobber and sadism uh, to, uh, to to quote one of the British critics on um, on the novel of uh, Doctor No, um, and, and, and probably was a good thing that they um, waited that half decade longer. A lot of change in terms of um, film culture and the relaxation of censorship, um, even even in those few years. Um, but Maybaum is um, he, he works first of all with uh, a British writer Wolf Mankiewicz, um, who, who again was 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 known to both Broccoli and and Saltzman. He's, he's usually credited with having um, having introduced them, um, and uh, they worked on a number of treatments together. Uh, Mankiewicz dropped out and and and, and famously requested his name be taken off the credit of, 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 of Doctor No, and, and, and Maybaum then then. Yeah, there was the one who I think really imposed a structure onto the uh, onto the script of Doctor No. What I found by going through 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 Richard Maybaum's papers and and the drafts of you know multiple drafts, some treatments, some full scripts, and um, usually when you've got a movie that's based on a book, and and it goes through the, that that process of drafting and redrafting, usually you start out with something that's pretty close to the book. And then it gets changed and modified as they think, well, we need to make this work cinematically. We need to be, you know, perhaps introduce slightly different things, have a different emphasis and so on. And you, what you tend to find is the later drafts move away from the original source material. With Dr. No, it's the other way around. The, 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 the first treatments um, um, jettison a lot of Fleming's story um so the, the, the very first treatment dr no uh, becomes um he's he's, he's head of a a, a tong a, a chinese secret society um there's no reference to to, to smirge or to specter or any any of fleming's villains 
Um, gradually that changes. He becomes uh, in turn uh, an agent for Red China, who's attempting to blow up the Panama Canal. Um, and then by about the fourth draft, I think it is, he's, uh, they've introduced Spectre. And by this time, the, 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 the script is coming a lot closer to the, to the structure of the novel. Um, they bring in, um, uh, it seems to be Maybaum who, who, who brought in Felix Leiter, Bond's uh, friend and colleague in the CIA, who of course is not in the, in the book. It, 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 it's one of the Bonds that, that Leiter doesn't appear in, and, and that was brought in, I think perhaps to give it an American interest, um, um, you know, geopolitically, the film is is is, is orienting towards the towards North America, um, and they've also perhaps got an eye on the an eye on the box office, um, and so that's how Jack Lord gets involved in the uh, in, in in the picture. Um, and Maybaum is involved right until the last draft, when um, it's a, a British uh, novelist, um, uh, Berkeley Mather, and an Irish playwright, uh, Jenna Harwood. Who, who come on board to work on the final uh, draft and, and and polish it up, um, and this is by this time it's it's pretty close to the start of the uh, shooting of the picture. I found it interesting um, in that I had just seen the movie The Duke, that um, you you had discovered that Joanna Harwood had actually come up with the idea of putting the Duke of Wellington portrait in Doctor No's uh, underground lair. Uh, it's funny because uh, in talking to um, Young, when I talked to him, he kind of dismissed Joanna as his script girl, uh, but she had a writing career of her own, correct? Yeah, she did. Yeah, um, she um, uh, she'd worked with Harry Saltzman, um, and uh, you know got on with him as well as as well as anybody did, I think, for a while. Um, but yeah, yeah, she'd. Um, um, she she studied she actually studied um, at, at, at at film school in in, in Paris, um, uh, but yeah, then worked in, in in the British film industry. Um, the, the, there is evidence she she'd read Fleming sometime before working on on Doctor No. There's a there's a magazine article some years earlier in which she'd written a a sort of a spoof James Bond story. It's about James Bond as a young boy. Uh, being spoiled by his nanny and and so on. Um, so she'd obviously you know read 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 Fleming, um, um, and she she she's involved in in, in Doctor No. Uh, she's involved in um, in film with love as as, as well. Um, what we know um, it, it it's it's difficult sometimes to untangle precisely who did what. We've got scripts with with people's names on. So just because somebody's names on a script doesn't necessarily mean they always contributed to the writing of it a name might be missing of somebody who, who did contribute so um yeah this takes some uh, some unpacking but we do know that um in contrast to wolf mankovitz who was paid seven thousand pounds uh for writing a couple of drafts of dr no richard mayban was paid five thousand he was five thousand two hundred pounds uh john howard was paid a paltry 250 pounds um, so either that would that would suggest that, that the women were, you know, underpaid in relation to men, or it might suggest that, that her role wasn't as extensive as the as the other writers. I think she made a contribution, um, but um, but it was it was more in a case of polishing the script um, and, uh, and 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 you know in, in devising a, uh, a key scene such as the, uh, the 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 Duke of Wellington portrait. 
Let's also talk about another major contributor to the film, uh, Peter Hunt. Yeah, well, Peter Hunt is the is the editor of the Bond films, and he, he you know, I, I'm trying to you know sort of hold away from using words like revolutionary, but I think Peter Hunt's editing style on the Bond movie does revolutionise the way in which films are cut. Um, that um, he, he has a very fast tempo. Um, by 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 contemporary standards and um, uh, using certain certain devices not not always matching directly on action sometimes using little jump cuts you know taking out a couple of frames of a film so you get this kind of um, um, sort of act, uh, acceleration of uh, you know, jumping in the screen space which which really accentuates the violence um the the the, the, you know, the, the brutality of the of the punch-ups um you know we we all we always talk about the, the great fight scene in for much of his love between uh, between connery and, uh, and robert shaw on the orient express and the way the way that uh the the, the sequence cuts into the space um but you're starting to see that in dr no as well and the um um, not in quite such a, such a big way as Fisher is love, but I think it's there from the start. When you look at, you know, sort of fisticuffs in um, in movies, um, before that, um, you, 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 there's that big scene with um, uh, Gregory Peck and Charlton Heston in, in, in the big country, and it's filmed pretty much in in, in long shot. You, you don't really get much of a close-up. You don't get much cutting into the, into the space, um, and that celebrated Donnybrook in uh, uh, in uh, uh, John Wayne and Victor McLaglen in in The Quiet Man. Um, again, it's 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 largely you know full shots of them. Whereas with 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 the Bond movies, it's partly the way Hunt is editing it, and partly the way, of course, that that Young was um, staging in the first place. And Bob Simmons, of course, as the um, as, as a stunt coordinator on Doctor No, um, using the cunning into space, um, and, and that becomes a standard. That becomes a standard for the way in which action movies are uh, shot. Um, yeah, right up until right up until today, really. Um, so yeah, Hunt is uh, eventually gets his opportunity to direct so with, um, of course, with Magisters. And and of course, if you if you if you kind of study Hunt's editing techniques, the fight scene on the beach and the teaser uh, when he rescues Diana Rigg is pure Peter Hunt in terms of the way he cuts it. It's just a it's a very dynamic fight, and uh, uh, you know I don't you know the, the Doctor No film is. There's so much bang for the buck there, considering what we consider today a very small budget. But I guess back in, and we were talking about it earlier before we got on the call, that uh, the budget was just a little over a million dollars, which seems like absolutely nothing. But in 1962, you could take a whole crew to Jamaica and take advantage of the lush tropics. And I think that one of, for my money, one of the selling points of the movie is how much the local flora and fauna is used. Yeah, I, mean, I think you know there's a real sense of atmosphere in the in the in the location sequences, and they're they're, they're drenched in sunlight, and uh, and then we know from the from the um, uh, the Jamaican uh, press when when the movie came out that uh, uh, the local press were were saying you know they they understood it was not a realistic picture of Jamaica, but they said my. Gosh, this is going to be great for tourism because it just makes the island look so uh, so beautiful. 
Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing about, the, about, about Dr. No, so the, um, the yeah, the, the ballpark figure is, is, is a million dollars, give or take. Um, it, it does go quite a way over budget, actually. It's um, it, the, 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 the over budget, you know, uh, situation of, um, of over 20 percent, I think it is. And that's 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 that's, that's quite a lot. It was um, for, for, for a British film, um, including American finance British films, Dr. No was. Uh, sort of, um, I, I'd say it's either at the top end of the middle third or the uh, bottom end of the top third of the budget range at the time in the early 1960s. Um, so it, it's not as it's not a super budget film. It's not it's not the Guns of Navarone. Um, it's not um, you know it's not Lawrence of Arabia. Um, but they are. But it is a, a, a significant cost. There's, there's more being spent on that than they're going to get back from the British market, or more than expecting to get back from the uh, British market, as, 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 as a rule of thumb. What I think um, uh, Kirby Bockley and Harry Saltzman did, um, you get very much of a sense that their their ethos was: you put the budget on the screen. And the when I when I was able to see a, the budget of, of, of Doctor No in the film finances archive, you know, a lot of the money goes on the sets, um, you, you know, the location costs and and so on. And they're not spending all that much on actors. Um, it, it, it's not a big cast budget. Um, I also compare it to there's a film uh, made only one year later, a film called The VIPs, uh, which was directed by Anthony Asquith, and that's uh, basically a two set movie it's 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 a character drama it's about a group of people waiting at london airport for the fog to clear to get a to get a play it's kind of a little mini mini soap opera and um and and that film cost i think it was three times more than dr no um it cost about three million dollars and and it's not because of the um the, the the any level of production values it's because they had elizabeth burton uh, sorry, Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton on the film, the Burton Taylors. And once you have those two on a film, that that accounts for a lot of your budget because they did not come cheap. Well, you're, um, you're, actually, you're actually mentioning one of my favorite films. I'm a huge fan of that film, particularly Margaret Rutherford's performance, which netted her an Oscar that year as the as the dowdy uh, duchess. Uh, yeah, no, it's interesting. Um, now, Connery made about what about fifty thousand dollars US for the role. About that, um, a bit, a bit less probably. He did, okay. The budget allowance uh, for for the actor playing James Bond in, in the budget is six thousand pounds. So that would have been oh, just short of eighteen thousand dollars. That was not a lot by um, by the sounds of the time. Um, his his salary goes up. Quite a bit with uh, from Russia with Love. Um, he's on, I think, about 24, 25,000 pounds for from Russia with Love. Um, so that's maybe around about $70,000. Um, from, 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 from Goldfinger, he's, he's, he's he, I, I'm pretty sure from Goldfinger, he's on a percentage of the a small percentage, but a percentage of the producer's share. Um, so, you know, they, they knew he was. An important part of the um, the appeal of the films, but um, but for Doctor No, um, uh, the, the cast the cast came pretty cheap on Doctor No. Right, right. It's kind of it's kind of uh, stunning to think what Daniel Craig got on his last movie in the tens of millions compared to what Sean got on his first movie. Um, <laughs> the times have definitely changed. They definitely changed. 
Um, now, the production, uh, I, I did find it very interesting and fascinating, indeed, the information you did get from film finance is the fact that you mentioned that the movie was in danger of going way over budget. They actually took it away from the producers and they took over supervision of the budget, which was uh, rather extraordinary for these producers. I don't think that had ever happened before. Yeah, so um, so as I said, film finances are the completion guarantor, and um, and and they're, they're there to, to to keep control of the costs, um, or rather to keep control of the costs if the producer can't uh, can't perform that role um, adequately, and they're monitoring the production, um, so they're they're reading um, the uh, the daily production reports, they look at weekly uh, cost reports. And uh, Doc, Dr. No is, 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 is behind schedule from day one. Um, the, 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 sun, the sun goes behind a cloud when they're filming at Kingston Airport on the first day. It's behind schedule right from the start. They're having to go, go back and do pickup shots. Um, they spend longer on location than they'd expected. Um, and so the film's over schedule, it's over budget by the time it comes back to Pinewood Studios. And um, you would think once it's in the studio that, 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 that that's when the director can get it back under, under control. Um, but they spend a lot more on the sets than, um, than was budgeted for. And this is what really started the alarm bells ringing um, with the with the completion guarantor, and they had a number of um, number of meetings with um, uh, with uh, 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 Cubby and Harry at uh, at, at, at Pinewood, and um, they just felt that, that the producers were not exercising sufficient diligence in um, in, in keeping the, the costs and the control, and that they'd allowed um, Ken Adam to uh, spend. Uh, more than was budgeted for. Now, Adam, Adam had told them the sets were going to cost this amount, and it, the the, yeah, the correspondence is there, so there's no blame attached to uh, attached to Ken Adam. And 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 towards the end of the studio shooting, uh, film finance has taken over. It's a condition of the guarantee that if the film gets into trouble, and by this time it was running, you know, sixty thousand pounds over budget. That's quite a significant overage on a on a film budgeted at about three hundred twenty thousand pounds. So. Um, they they take it over now. That that basically means that they take over the financial control of the film. So you can't sign any checks on the production account without the guarantor approving it. Nobody gets fired. Um, you know, Terence Young's still there on the floor directing it. Peter Hunt's still there in 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 the cutting room. Um, the, the the guarantor did have that uh, power if they wanted to do. It's very rare that they. Um, have, have, have exercised it, but they did need to just take over the, over the picture to ensure that it was finished in a timely uh, 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 manner. Um, what, what surprised me from working at an archive, not not just on Doctor No, but look at other films, is, is how often films can get into trouble after the shooting is finished. Um, sometimes they 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 take forever in in, in editing and post production. Um, and so well, you know, yeah. you, you mentioned Ken Adam. I think Ken Adam's contribution to Doctor No is extraordinary. Given that, uh, I mean, I I look at the reactor room set, and I look at that that that, and you you're saying that the whole movie costs three hundred thousand plus pounds. It would seem that the the the, the construction of the reactor room would cost that much it's an extraordinary set and there's there's steel involved in there it's not just all plaster of paris it it, it looks a lot more expensive than it is and that that was part of adam's um um 
well, I'm going to say part of his genius. Um, um, Adam, Adam, Adam's visual style is extraordinary. You, 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 you watch Doctor No, and 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 you know definitely when you, when you see it on a big screen, you you're watching the first forty minutes or so, and a lot of nice location cinematography, um, drenched in in in, in so and so. But it but it, it it's quite conventional in a, in a, in a lot of ways. Then you have the scene where Professor Dent goes over to the island. Um, on the boat, you know, the exterior shot of him walking along the books like mine, and he goes through that door, and then you're on the set, and you're on this kind of Dr. Caligari world. It, it changes visually right in that in the in that in 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 that one cut. And you have that remarkable, it's a very simple set, just with the, the bare room, the, the the tables, the spider, the grill. Uh, the, the 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 grill in 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 the in the ceiling, um, and, and and the shadows and 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 and, and the way that he had Doctor No's voice coming down. And it's at that moment that Doctor No goes from being a fairly routine sort of um, you know secret agent procedural kind of thriller um, to being something quite fantastical and out of this world. Um, and then the other so, you know the other sets you've got Doctor No's dining room. Um, you know, we've already met, we've mentioned the, the, the Duke of uh, Duke of Wellington uh, joke, but the um, you, you know that dining table with those Gothic candelabras and and you know the you know it's great that, that, that supervillains living in in underwater caverns you know have that kind of decor and so on. And I don't know where they where they get it from. And and then the reactor room, which is this this kind of you know, high uh, high modernity. In a sense, and 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 that, of course, is the direction the films are going to take. You look at you look at Goldfinger, um, you look at Diamonds Are Forever, um, the, uh, the 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 sets of Atlantis in um, in Spy Love Me, and they're all Ken Adam uh, Ken Adam designs, and um, uh, that, that you know, the, the, the 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 smooth metallic surfaces, you know, the, the 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 symmetrical angles, all all, all that kind of thing is uh, is uh, is a Ken Adam hallmark, yeah. No, absolutely, absolutely. Um, the uh, the other contributor, I mean, everybody brought great, great uh, skill to the. I mean, Ted Moore's cinematography just as gorgeous as you pointed out. Uh, we have to talk a little bit about Monty Norman and John Barry. I mean, Monty's uh, local flavor music, I thought, contributed tremendously to the atmosphere you pointed out. Yeah, I mean, Monty Norman is on location. Um, at the start of the shooting, um, and he and he and Terence Young are interviewing uh, local musicians. Um, so that's where they find uh, Byron Lee's band, uh, which is the uh, the kind of house band at Pussfellas uh, nightclub in in the picture, um, and um, uh, a, a, a future reggae artist, Jamaican reggae artist, known as Count Prince Miller, who we see in the film performing his dance routine to um, jump up Jamaica. Uh, and, and yeah, so there's that real sort of, sort of local flavor. It's, it's not in the film all that much, but it's, it's there. It's, it's definitely there in the in, in the scenes before we go out to uh, to Crab Key. Now we we know because there's quite a controversy over um, who wrote the James Bond theme. Um, you know, Monty Norman is officially gets the credit for it. We know that John Barry came in and, and um, uh, rejigged it, and 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 and, and the, the arrangement in the film is is his, and so on. And, and Barry, of course, goes on. On to become the the sound of the of the Bond movies, uh, um, uh, and 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 again, it, it's it's so distinctive. I mean, hourly, 
you know the 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 soundscape of the bomb movies is 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 just as distinctive as as as, as adam's uh, set design is uh, visually and i think it's all these elements coming together you know i never want to single out one of the creative inputs um, above all the others but i think it's the combination of them all that just uh, comes together and and and, and creates this this very distinctive style um that that, that we've seen in in, in doctor no and 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 the other early films well when i interviewed cubby back in 77 he told me that his 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 aim was to introduce a two-fisted englishman of course obviously he he gets a scott uh, which is fine uh and a guy who was good with his fists and i think that what sean connery demonstrates so vividly in this movie is that this is a guy who when he takes out Mr. Jones in the original mm-hmm. scene is, is a guy who can take care of himself. And Connery is all over this movie uh, in such manner uh, that, uh, and of course in a movie like this, even if you have all these great creatives contributing, you've got to have the right man to have be Bond. And Bond, Sean is Bond. And uh, now let me ask you a question because I, I, I was a little unclear about this. Was there indeed a poll taken in the British newspapers prior to the start of, uh, of casting uh, where Sean was chosen as a candidate to play Bond? Uh, no, I think that, that that's a story. There are a couple of stories that get conflated. Um, okay. There was there was a poll um, that was run by the Daily Express, which is a popular British tabloid uh, newspaper, um, where and I think this is before they they definitively knew they were going ahead with with with, with Doctor No. It's, it's maybe maybe a year or so earlier, and um, they, they they ran a poll of if they were going to do a Bond movie, who who, who would be the best uh, choice, and um, it was um, it was a, a male model called uh, called Peter Anthony. Who uh, run that uh, competition? Um, Bob Simmons apparently was one of the uh, was one of the runners up. Who, of course, goes on to become Connery's uh, uh, stunt double. Um, but that that had no influence on the on the casting of the film. It was uh, it was it was a sort of publicity gimmick. The, the Express had a, a relationship with, with with Bond. They'd been publishing uh, serializing some of the novels. They'd been publishing a James Bond comic strip from the late ninety a, a daily comic strip from the late nineteen fifties. Um, so it was yeah, it was just a bit of a publicity gimmick to um, uh, to get interest in the in, in the property. Connery, you know, again, he's, he's another one of the of the people who's um, you know, all, it all comes together uh, in, um, in 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 Doctor No. Um, I'll say two things about Connery. One is that he was not an unknown actor. Um, he wasn't a, a, a big star, but but he'd, he'd got a significant body of TV work behind him. Uh, he'd done a number of um, uh, of uh, films. Uh, Cubby had seen him in a, a Disney film. Uh, Darby O'Gill and the Little People. Um, he'd been a, a supporting heavy in uh, in Tarzan's Greatest Adventure. And prior to Doctor No, he made a, a, a film called The Frightened City, which is a British crime movie. It's, it's a sort of underworld, uh, police underworld uh, uh, movie. And Connolly plays a, a sort of um, a sort of good bad guy. If I can put it that way. He's, he's a sort of underworld enforcer. And uh, there's some scenes in that where he's um, you're wearing a dinner suit and walking through a nightclub and so on. And the, the way that Connery moves, there's a little bit of Bond or, or what would become Bond. You, you can see the, the promise there. Um, so he was, he, he, was, he, he was an actor who was very much on the way up. 
uh, you know, but certainly not an, an unknown. But what we get with Conway's Bond is a style of performance that's totally unlike any other British actor uh, before that. So you, you look at the tradition of British screen leading men, uh, and I'm thinking of people like David Niven, Robert Donat, Leslie Howard. Um, and these, these are very gentlemanly actors, very refined voices and so on. But tough is not the word we would use to describe them. Um, courageous, heroic sort of roles, yes, but not, not tough guys. Uh, what, what Connery does is bring to British films the kind of physical presence and the, the kind of brawn equality uh, that we associate with the with the Hollywood tradition style, and you know, people like your, your Gary Coopers and Clark Gables, James Cagney, Steve McQueen, those kind of actors. Yeah, Connery and Steve McQueen. I mean, they're they're they're, they're different looking. Uh, you know, Connery is you know much you know taller uh, guy, but the way in which they move, um, I, I think, no matter what else is going on in the scene, you're, you're watching those those stars, and 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 that's what Connery brought to the brought to the films. It's it's completely unlike any other British um, British screen hero before then. Well, it's interesting you mentioned McQueen because in looking at their careers, Connery and McQueen have very similar beginnings. Uh, they they're both born in 1930. Uh, they both have major television credits and they both break out in about the same year. I mean, Connery breaks out in 62, 63 with Bond. Steve McQueen breaks out with the movie The Great Escape in 63. And of course, uh, they both become international stars from that point on. Uh, we're winding down our interview. I have to bring up the subject because I thought it was the most interesting in the book that you, uh, you dispelled the myth of the monkey. So uh, in, in many of our, our research efforts over the years, we got the impression that Wolf Mankiewicz didn't leave the Bond movie voluntarily. He was fired by Cubby for, for making the name Dr. No the name of the monkey that was on the villain's shoulder. Your book obviously sets the record straight. Give us a little context there. Yeah, well, this, uh, this, this story that in the, uh, in, in the first draft of Dr. No, Dr. No was a monkey. Um, and uh, depending on, 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 on who's telling the story, um, it, it was either a monkey was sitting on somebody's shoulder or there was literally a monkey sitting there pulling control levers and, uh, the, the, and, and, and so on. Um, it, it, it's, I'm not entirely sure where the story starts. I mean, I mean Richard Maybaum tells it. Um, Cubby tells it. Um, uh, John Harwood um, has told it. Uh, Richard Maybaum has, has, has told it. So it's a wide. Terence Young told it. it it's 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 one of the stories that somebody picked up and everybody else seems to have, seems to have run with. And it is categorically not true. What happens in the first draft of Doctor No? It's, it's a treatment. It's not a full script. It's a treatment. And this is where Doctor No is the um, unseen. Um, leader of the Black Monkey, the Chinese secret society operating in, in Jamaica. Um, and when Bond goes out to uh, Crab Key, um, he goes out with, 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 he travels out with Honey and, and actually with, in some of the drafts with, with, with Felix as well. Um, and they come across a, a graveyard um, and there's a, there's a large statue of a monkey. And Honey says, that must be the grave of a very important man. It turns out to be the grave of Dr. No. And what happens is the leader 
of this this black monkey tong has either died or it's kind of inferred he's been been murdered by his second in command um who's a um half british half creole shipping merchant um called hugh buckfield and hugh buckfield has assumed the disguise of Dr. No, as he's wearing robes and a a face mask. And Bond realises this when he recognises a pet capuchin monkey, which he'd seen um, at Hugh Buckfield's house, but it's there also in Dr. No's um, headquarters. So uh, Bond works out that that, that Buckfield and and Dr. No um, are are the same person. And the the monkey isn't even called Dr. No either. It's it's, it's called Lee Ching and and, and so on. So the whole whole Dr. No was a monkey story is, uh, I'm sorry to say, because it's it's a great story, but uh, (laughs) no, it it, it doesn't turn out to uh, 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 be true. Thank you for that. That's that's great. And uh, everyone, the, the book Dr. No, the first James Bond film is is a wonderful title. Can you tell us how people can get it? Uh, yeah, it's available from all good bookstores, um, hard copy bookstores and online um, uh, bookstores. Um, or you can go direct to uh, Columbia University Press uh, website. Um, and it's, uh, it's available there. We've been listening to James Chapman, who's, who's become an authority on the Bonds and certainly a kindred spirit of mine. Um, I'm your host, Steve Rubin. You've been listening to Saturday Night at the Movies. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. We're on the Lock 22 Network. James, this has been terrific. And I want to have you back because we have to have an evening talking about Hitchcock because I, I think we could have a lot of fun talking about the master of suspense. Well, thanks, Steve, and I'd love to do that. Fabulous.